Today I'm beginning my second teaching on the subject that I've entitled, Paul's Secrets to Happiness. Really, as I said, these aren't secrets. He's made it very clear in the Scripture why he was able to rejoice in the midst of terrible situations. So it's, it's clear, but it's nonetheless, it's a secret to most people today. Most people don't think this way. The attitudes that Paul is expressing here are just completely contrary to the way that modern-day men think and operate today. And that's the reason that we have so much discouragement and depression. And You know, it's just amazing. We've got more going for us. We've got all of these conveniences, and yet people are as miserable or, I believe, more miserable than they've been in previous generations And it's because you can't find joy and peace in these external things. It's in the way you think. Happiness is a way of thinking. It's a state of mind, not a state of being. And people are looking for happiness in all of these wrong things. So we've already covered four things. First thing was Paul knew he was doing God's will. We took that from Acts chapter 16. Then we talked about how Paul was into other people. He loved other people. If you are an island unto yourself, if you've isolated yourself, if you are only focused on yourself, you're going to be a very miserable person. We also talked about Paul had something that was bigger than himself. That was the third thing, is that he, the cause of Christ, the preaching of the gospel, if if God would be glorified through his death, then so be it. That's what he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Or excuse me, that's verse 20. And so Paul had something bigger than himself. And then in verses 21 through the end of Philippians chapter 1, Paul talked about for him to live was Christ and to die was gain. He was dead to himself. Boy, that's huge. I could teach on that. Matter of fact, I have taught on that for weeks and weeks at a time. So these are four things. You've got to know that you're in the center of God's will you got to get outside of yourself and into other people. you got to become a giver instead of a taker. you got to have a purpose that is bigger than yourself, something to live for beyond yourself. And you got to die to yourself and make Christ number one in your life. You need to find joy and peace in the Lord and get beyond yourself and beyond thinking about yourself. All right, so the fifth reason here is in Philippians chapter 2 in verse 1. He says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, which all of these things are true, they are there in Christ in an abundance. Then, in verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy that you may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now actually, these things, they all intertwine. It's like there's an overlap. I'm just breaking these things into these different points for the purpose of discussion. But in reality... You can't do what this is talking about, look on others without having died to yourself, without having a cause that is bigger than yourself. All of these things are interrelated, but for the purpose of discussion, I'm breaking them into things. And right here he says, this is the fifth thing that I've isolated here in Philippians. He's saying that you need to be like-minded, having the same love, be of one accord and of one mind, 
I guarantee you that does not happen accidentally. Nobody is going to walk in accord and being of one mind just because it's the easiest route to go. This is a hard thing to do. This is something that is against human nature. In just human nature, you cannot maintain relationships long term. Because over a period of time, something's going to happen. Somebody's going to rub you the wrong way. For you to walk in love takes effort. And he is here giving this as a command. Did you know most people kind of have unity, love, getting along with people as a goal? And you would like to see it happen. And if it happens with no effort, well then praise God. That would just be great. But very few people will put effort into it. It takes effort to walk in love. And here are some of the keys. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. And I thought, boy, that's huge. I could spend a long time talking about this. There are some people that the way that they get, the way they get things done is they just, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. They're going to gripe. They're going to complain. They're going to push their way. We live in a society today that if somebody does something wrong, just sue them. You know, when I was a kid, we had fights with guys. People would say things about me. They did things to me that you shouldn't do to people. I'm not advocating and saying that those things should be done. But when I was a kid, you just, you just got over it. You got along with them. And, and over a period of time, some of these people who used to be your enemy and used to say these things, you made peace with them. They actually become friends. Today, we have grade school kids suing each other because somebody called them fat, because this happened, because these things. I'm not saying that we should be doing those things, but I'm saying today it's just a totally different mindset. It's like promote yourself, take care of yourself, take them to the law, go over to the other parent's house and do this. Call the police on some little kid who insulted your kid on the playground. Man, this is opposite what this is saying. Don't let things be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Boy, this, this is in short supply today. There are very, very few people that even see this as a positive thing, much less something that they pursue and something that they really desire and are trying to make happen in their life. Most people think that they are all important and if somebody comes against them, it, any, anything is justified. This says that we should, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Man, that is just amazing. This is nearly, uh, for the average person, this is something that isn't even on the page. It's, it's like it's not only you know on a different page, it's in a different book. The very reason many of you are not able to rejoice is because you don't put anything or anyone else ahead of yourself. It's all about you. I'm telling you, this is a key, is that you need to walk in love. And love will honor and prefer another person over yourself. Jesus said, No greater love hath any man than this, that he lay down his life for another. Did you know that's just another way of saying that love puts other people first. Love actually esteems other people more than you esteem yourself. What is going to be the best for other people in your family? You know, if we would do this, if we would think about, let's just do it on a family basis. What would bless your mate the most? What is the best for your mate? 
If you honored them and preferred them and thought about them more than you thought about yourself, I guarantee you it would eliminate nearly all strife in marriage. Again, Proverbs 13.10, only by pride comes contention. See, you can see this in Jesus. When Jesus came, Jesus humbled himself. And it says in Ephesians chapter 5 that we're supposed to love, the man is supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He preferred us. He esteemed us more important than himself. He laid his life down for us. He suffered shame and rejection and humiliation for us. He considered us as more important than himself. You know, I had one of my Bible college students come to me. This has only been a year or two ago. And he had heard me say something about the scripture that says Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And I made a comment how that God, before he ever created the world, before he ever created people, had already seen that we would reject him and that Jesus would have to come and die and pay for our sins. And this Bible college student came and said, Are you saying that God already anticipated and knew the rejection that the world would, would commit? And I said, Yes. He says, I can't understand that. How could God, knowing all of the terrible things that would be ushered in, all of the Hitlers, all of the you know, Pharaohs, all of the people who have raped and plundered and murdered in the heartache, how could God create this world anticipating, knowing what would happen? And when he first said that, I honestly didn't have an answer. And I just thought, well, uh, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame and did all of these things. And I said, I guess it's because he valued you and me so much. He wanted our love and our acceptance so much that he thought all of the pain, all of the rejection, all of the suffering that it was going to cost him was worth it to get you and me. You know, that is amazing. In the Amplified Translation of Ephesians chapter 2, I forget the exact verse, but it's around verse 3 or 4. I don't remember the exact wording, but it's something to the effect that God, because of His great love, and in order to satisfy His great love, and then it goes on and talks about how he died for us and commended his love towards us through Jesus. And that's basically it. God loved us so much that he preferred us. It's not like God looked at mankind and says, Oh, I've got to have them. Boy, these people, I've got to have them. I need them for myself. It's not God who needed us. It's us who needed God. And God preferred us above Himself. God literally put our welfare ahead of His welfare. And because of that, praise God, we have redemption today. That's the mind. That's the heart of God. And now that we are born again, this is the heart that we have. We can actually get to where we love other people more than ourselves. You know, I've got a testimony that could be a very long testimony. I'm going to try and squeeze this in. But one of the very first employees that I ever had was a woman who I met her the night that her husband had tried to kill her and the police were on the front lawn of their home separating the man and his wife and, and the woman's two kids and the police were standing in between them and 
This woman had just gotten born again about a month or two before this, and the people who led her to the Lord called me and asked me to come over there, and this is how I met this woman. And this guy had tried to kill her. He had taken a butcher knife to her and uh, tried to kill her. And so the people who had led her to the Lord, they said, tell this woman that she doesn't have to live with that man and put up with this abuse. And so I just told her, I said, you don't have to live with this man, put up this abuse. I said it about like that. And she said, but? Like she could tell that there was more to it than what I said. And I said, well, you don't have to live with him. The Bible says if he's not pleased to dwell with you, don't, uh, you know, then you don't have to, if he's not pleased to dwell with you, then you can depart. You aren't under bondage. And I said, but it's just the devil in this man that makes him the way he is. You're born again. You have the power of God. You can overcome this. If you want to, you could stay and you could see the situation change. And anyway, to the disapproval of the people who brought me over there, this woman latched on to what I said, and she started trying to make this marriage work. She came to work for me, and over a period of, I don't know, nine months or a year, she, every day we would talk, and I would just teach her. I would disciple her and tell her how she could walk in love. And part of it was these very things. I said, you need to think about this man. Why is he like he is? You know, this man, it's a long story. I'm, I'm trying to cram all of this in, but it's really dramatic what happened. But this woman, her first husband died. She had two children by a previous marriage. She was a white woman. This was a black man that she was married to. And she was in a state of turmoil. She had inherited two or three corporations that her previous husband had. And she had all of these financial pressures, plus the uh, husband being gone, plus her two children. She walked into a daylight donut shop. And this man walked up to her, called her name, said, Your husband is dead. You have two or three corporations, whatever it is. I'm God. If you'll worship me, I'll solve your problems. I mean, it was demonic, the power that he was operating in. And this woman wasn't born again at the time. She didn't know any better, so she married the guy and worshipped him as God. This guy could quote most of the New Testament. He was a deacon in a church. He had the semblance of a Christian, but he was demonic. He could levitate tables. He would leave his body at night, howl at the moon. Um, it was just bad, the stuff that is going on. And anyway, he had tried to kill her. He had taken a um, butcher knife to her once. He had uh, poured hot grease over her trying to kill her. And the reason that the uh, police had separated them this night that I met them was because that he had a rule that if these two kids from previous marriage ever came out of the basement, he'd kill them. And they had snuck up trying to get something out of the refrigerator. And he found them and he was trying to kill them. And uh, the wife had to s separate them, called 911, and this is the situation. So anyway, I started talking to her about only by pride comes contention. I said, what this guy's doing is bad. And I said, you are free to leave if you want to leave, but you can overcome this. Why is he like this is? Instead of just thinking about what's he doing to you, what is it that makes this man the way that he is? And I started helping her to look not only on her own things, but to look on the things of others, to think about what is happening with him. And she went back, found out that this guy was born, I think, in Jamaica. He had a, a chicken killed at his birth, and he was drenched in the chicken blood and dedicated to the devil. He was raised in all of this voodoo and witchcraft. And this woman, when she saw things from his side, 
she began to actually have a supernatural love for him and think this is why I'm in this man's life is to turn him around, to help him find redemption and salvation. And she started loving this guy. And she, when she did that, all of her anger just dissipated. It was gone. And it actually got to a place that they went to a marriage counselor. This was a guy that I knew. He was a spirit-filled Christian. He was supposed to know better. But he sat down and asked the man for his side of the story. The man lied and said everything he had done. He transposed it to his wife and said she had tried to kill him. She had taken a butcher knife to him. She had poured hot grease over him. She had tried to kill the children. He just lied. He said that she levitated tables. She communicated with spirits. She barked at the moon. Everything he did, he accused her of. And this friend of mine who was the counselor got so mad that he stood up and he said, Divorce this woman. You do not have to stay with a person like this. And his wife, the counselor's wife, had to calm him down and say, Look, there's always two sides to every story. Let's ask the woman what her side was. Let me ask you this. If this had been you in this marriage counseling, how many of you would have even let your husband lie about you and say these things about you without you retaliating and defending yourself? Probably nobody. But this woman didn't say a word. When it finally came her turn and they said, what is your side of the story? She said, I used to think that my husband was all the problem, but I found out that it was. I'm just as much a part of the problem. It's only by pride that contention comes. All of my anger was because I was only looking at things from my side of the story. I started looking at his side and she says, I'm changing. God's working on me. And she didn't say one derogatory thing against him. So this counselor said, that's it divorce her, get rid of it, and that was the end of the counseling session. When they got back out to the car, the man was physically trembling. And he asked his wife, he says, why didn't you tell them the truth? Why didn't you defend yourself? And she says, God has already set me free. She says, I am totally content through Jesus. And I came here to help you. And if you running me down and lying about me is going to help you, then she says, that's fine. I don't care. And you know what? That love, esteeming him and not defending herself, it so touched this man that he got afraid of her. He lost his powers to communicate with spirits, to levitate tables. He moved out for about six months. And this woman just used that to get the kids out of the basement to try and help heal the family. And she was just praising God and worshiping God. And this man eventually got born again, spirit-filled, moved back home, and then they started having problems because he wanted to go to Ramah and become a preacher, and she didn't want to be a preacher's wife. (laughs) What a transformation! And you know how it happened? Because she started thinking on other people. She started letting this mind be in her which was in Christ. She started loving this man, and she literally valued him more highly than she valued herself. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that in every situation that you ought to put up with stuff, put your children at risk. There are times that even though I don't like divorce, I think it's better than murder. I'm not saying that you everybody's got to do this, but I am using this as, a, as an example of how a woman put herself inferior to her husband, started honoring him, thinking about him, And because of it, it diffused that situation and it turned this situation around. This is one of the keys to happiness, is learning how to esteem other people and their welfare better than yourself. Putting other people first. 
And if you do that, I guarantee you it's a recipe for happiness. So that was a key. And then Philippians chapter 2 and in verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, this is powerful. Let me just remind you that in the first four verses of this chapter, he talked about walking in love and um, in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than themselves. Don't look on your own things, but look on the things of others. Put other people ahead of yourself. And then immediately he says, let this mind be in you. Jesus is the supreme example of a person who lived for others and exalted others above himself. Jesus was born to die. He came to this earth to die. That was his mission. That was his function. Did you know very, very, very few people would do something if they knew that it was going to cost them their life? Jesus came for that purpose, and he constantly put us ahead of himself. That's what this saying. And we need to let this mind be in us. So this would be what I consider us see. This is number six. Think like Christ. Get this same attitude that Jesus has that you put others ahead of yourself and you live for the exaltation and the benefit of other people. You know, this is a really simple thing to say, but if people really would do this, it would transform every relationship that we have. But with most people, we, we suck the life out of other people. We drain them. We draw all of their assets to us. And then when they cease to be a benefit to us, we just throw them to the side. You know, this is an oversimplification, but in a, in a large way, to a big degree, this is what's wrong with marriage in our society today because people don't marry to find a person that they want to pour them, their life into, they find a person that they can drain them. That's the mindset. I mean, the guy marries the girl because she was the beautiful homecoming queen. The woman marries the guy because he was the football star and he was all buff and had this long, black, wavy hair and, you know, all of these things. Looking at things that basically it's so that you know, when the guy's walking down the street with the girl on his arm, everybody can look at him and say, man, isn't he lucky to have her? She's an asset. And that's what draws most people to their mate is that they see how this person is going to benefit them. But then the guy begins to get the Chester drawers disease where your chest is done dropped down into your drawers. <laughs> and you get the Dunlop disease where you're your belly has done lopped over your belt buckle. The only way you can see your belt buckle is in the mirror. And, you know, you lose your long black wavy hair. This woman that was a homecoming queen, she ceases to look like that and she gets old and wrinkled. And all of a sudden the guy says, you know, I just, I think the love has gone out of our relationship. It never was God's kind of love. It was lust. 
You lusted for them and what they could provide for you. And the moment that they cease to be an asset and they become a liability, then it's over. And all of a sudden you say you don't love them anymore. You know, that's not the right reason. Of course, I, I'm not going to teach on marriage right here, but let me just say this, that the real reason for marriage isn't for what you can get out of it, but what you can give. You literally ought to find a person that you love and that you say, I want to spend the rest of my life helping make this person a success, helping bless them. It's not about using them to bless you. Well, that's big what I've just said. If people were to do that, it would transform marriage. You know, when I was a kid, we had a man that lived behind us. Our, we shared a fence together. And I would often talk to this guy, you know, when I was out in the backyard. He was a principal of a school. And I was real young. I don't remember all of the details, but I know that his wife had a car wreck. And because of it, she was basically in a vegetative state. She was able to breathe on her own, but she wasn't. She couldn't communicate. She couldn't get up and around. She was invalid. And um, anyway, this man loved that woman for, I don't know, 20 years, I would imagine, minimum, possibly more. He was a principal of a school. He did all of these things. He worked, but he took care of his wife. He loved her. He took care of her. And I tell you, I think that that is a godly example. But you know, there's a lot of people that the moment that that woman ceased to be the mate that could cook and that could clean and that could provide you with the relationship that you wanted and all of these things, there's many people, well, I've got needs. What about me? And they'd just divorce a person like that and walk away from them. That's not God's kind of love. That's not what Jesus modeled. It says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ. Jesus didn't come to this earth because He needed us. It's because we needed Him. We couldn't live without Him. The human race was doomed without Him. And Jesus came and literally gave of Himself. He, he was in the form of God is what it says. He was God. And he didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. That's just an old English way of saying he knew he was God. He knew who he was. And yet he humbled himself. He didn't act as God. He acted as a mere man. He laid aside his supernatural deity. Now, he was still God in the spirit. He was deity in the spirit. But he took upon himself the form of flesh. And he humbled himself. Not only at the cross not only when he suffered death, but I mean, Jesus came into this world as a baby. He was Christ the Lord at his birth, is what the angels sang. So in the spirit, he was God. But he took upon himself the form of human being and he started out as a baby. He humbled himself. He couldn't control himself. He couldn't eat properly. He couldn't walk. He had to be taught how to, t to speak. I know most people don't even think about these things. But that's humbling himself. Here's Almighty God who the scripture says that the heavens, even the heavens of the heavens cannot contain God. The entire universe, billions of light years span across it. it the scripture says it fits in the palm of his hand. Here's Almighty God who is bigger than the universe that he created. And he limits himself to a physical body being in one place at one time. That's mind-boggling. He did that not because of any benefit to him. He did it because of how it would benefit us. He humbled himself. 
This is what the scripture is saying, that this is the way we need to live. And did you know when you get to where you live this way, some people think, well, if I live that way, nothing good would ever happen for me. Everybody would just run over me and take advantage of me. If I esteemed other people better than myself, who would take care of me? God. It goes on to say that because he humbled himself and yielded himself, that God has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because Jesus humbled himself, God Almighty exalted him. If there wasn't a God who intervened in the affairs of men, if there wasn't a God who dealt with us and saw how we acted and rewarded us when we did proper things, If that wasn't true, well, then it is true that by you humbling yourself, taking on the attitude of Jesus, laying your life down, loving people who don't love you, then those things would lead to your extinction. It would lead to your being just run over by people. But because there is a God who says that He notices how we live, that He will reward us when we believe in Him and trust in Him, then God will actually promote you when you humble yourself. The way up in God's kingdom is down. To be greatest, you have to learn to be servant of all, is what Jesus said. You know, He not only humbled Himself to become a man, and and here's infinite God becoming finite and limiting Himself to a physical human body. He not only did that, but when He rose from the dead, He rose from the dead with a glorified body. Now, it's not got the exact same limitations as these physical bodies. We can see that Jesus could just be translated from place to place. He could appear inside of a room with all of the windows and the doors locked. So it's not exactly like this body, but it still is uh, flesh and bones, is what Jesus said. And so here is the risen Christ who not only became finite and limited himself to a body for a specific period of time, but throughout all eternity, here's Almighty God who will continue to dwell in a physical body that has marks of crucifixion in it, that He was marred, and he, He's doing this so He can identify with us, so that throughout all eternity, He's going to still inhabit the glorified body. This is amazing. And He didn't do any of these things because of personal benefit. He did it because of our benefit. This is the mind that Paul is suggesting, or not suggesting, he's, it's a command that we need to let this mind be in us, which was in Christ Jesus. Over in Philipp, uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Arm yourselves with this same mind that Christ had. It's a defense against the devil. It's a way to overcome. It's an offensive weapon. You know, the Bible says that if you love those who hate you and if you do good to them and feed them and bless them, that you heap coals of fire upon their head. Did you know when you're walking in love, when you're letting this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, you literally are just driving the devil crazy. He can't understand this. Satan doesn't have this godly attitude. He doesn't understand anybody who does. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it talks about the princes of this world and the demonic powers that operated through them. They didn't understand the wisdom of God. If they had, they never would have crucified Jesus. 
It was prophesied in Scripture what would happen, that Jesus would die for our sins, that He would rise again on the third day. It was all written out, and Satan is so carnal, he even had it in black and white, and he still couldn't figure it out. The natural mind, apart from the influence of God, just does not understand the things of God, and Satan could not understand it. And when you're walking in love, and you're humbling yourself, and you're promoting other people and you're laying your life down to bless somebody else, the devil can't handle it. It drives him crazy. He just doesn't understand. He cannot relate to this. Neither can all of the carnal people that are under the dominion and the influence of the devil. I tell you, when you humble yourself, it puts you on the high ground. It gives you a position where the anointing of God is flowing in your life, and good things happen because of it. Just like Jesus, he was exalted and now every knee is going to bow. Every tongue confess that he's Lord. God will exalt you and promote you when you choose the way of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall see God is what Jesus said. So this is what this is talking about. That we need to let this mind be in us which was in Christ Jesus. And if we would apply this like in our marriages, what a difference it would make if we instead of demanding that you do this for me and what about my rights and you take care of me, Instead, if you just loved your mate and spent your life trying to bless them, I know some of you are thinking right now, well, what about me? What about them blessing me? Again, it's not about you. I tell you, as long as you, if you try and implement what I'm talking about with the ulterior motive that by be doing this, I'll finally get them to be the person that they're supposed to be and treat me right and meet my every need, then see, you didn't do it with the right heart and it's not going to work. If you do all of these things and don't do it by motivated by God's kind of love, it's sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. It's not going to work. You have to honestly lay your life down and whether it ever benefits you or not, do it because you love and prefer people more than you love yourself. You know, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world and the vast majority of the world has not accepted him. If he only gave his life because he saw that it was going to benefit him and draw all of these people unto him, well, then I guarantee you, Jesus would be dissatisfied and unfulfilled because the majority of people are not receiving what he's doing. But he died for them just the same. If they never accept him, he still bore their sins. He still took their punishment. Every rapist, every murderer, every liar, every thief, Every selfish person, and on and on you could go just listing things, Jesus took all of their sin and suffered their punishment whether they accept it or not. It wasn't conditional. He didn't just die for the people who he knew would forgive him. It says he died for the sins of the whole world. And likewise, we need to get to where whether this person ever responds, whether we ever see it in this life or not, we just need to lay our life down for the other person. If you treated your wife like a queen, she probably would wind up treating you like a king. But you can't do it for that purpose. It is true that as you give, it comes back unto you. But you just need to lay your life down as Christ did for the church. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 5. That husbands are supposed to love their wife the way that Christ loved the church. And Jesus gave himself for us, died for us. And even those of us who have accepted Jesus and love Him and are submitted unto Him and seeking Him, we don't fully understand everything that He's done. We don't fully appreciate it. 
Did you know he, he knew that we were incapable of fully understanding what he's done for us. He knew that his sacrifice was going to be totally wasted on some people because they wouldn't reject it, because they would reject it. And even those who accepted his sacrifice would never fully appreciate what he did. And yet he went ahead and died for us. Let this mind be in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. If you want to have true joy and happiness, this is the way you need to get that you just love other people and put their welfare ahead of your own, that you begin to think like Christ. You arm yourself with this same mind that Jesus had. And when you get to where you live for other people more than you live for yourself, I guarantee you joy and peace will not be a problem. It'll be an automatic byproduct of putting God and other people first. You know, the average marriage, it's like sticking a straw down into one of these cups and you just suck the life out of it. You suck all of the good and when you hear the at the end, then you throw that one away and say, man, I got to go get another one. I've lost my love. It's not working. And you go and find somebody else that you can just draw the life out of. That's not the mind that Jesus had. I know that's an oversimplification, but to a very large degree, that's exactly what the problem is in most marriages is that people aren't loving the other person, they are using the other person. You need to get to where you literally find somebody that you just say, I want to pour my life into this person. I want to spend the rest of my life. And you know, this is the reason I like the old traditional wedding vows where it says, until death do we part in sickness and in health, in, in prosperity or in poverty. Today, a lot of people take that out because they aren't going to serve the other person. If it costs them financially, if they can't prosper, if that other person doesn't produce, if they get sick and can no longer benefit them the way they want to, they aren't willing to commit to a relationship like that. But I believe that that is a godly attitude. This is the mind that Christ had. He committed Himself to us. Whether we accept Him or not, He died for our sins. And even if we accept Him, we don't ever fully appreciate it. We don't ever fully repay Him. We don't live exactly the way He wants us to, and yet He still loved us. And He serves us, and He, he gave His life for us. This is the attitude that Paul is promoting. Paul is promoting it because this is the attitude that he had. He learned it through the Holy Spirit. His new nature was like this. You know, in our hearts, some people think, well, I'm just not that way. Yes, you are in your spirit. If you've been born again, Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, all of these things. In your spirit, you have this same love that Jesus had, that He turned the other cheek when they crucified Him. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You've got that Spirit on the inside of you. You've got that love. But it's encased in this old way of thinking, in our old carnal self, in this physical body. You have to renew your mind. You need to be discipled. You need to hear what the Word says. Some of you, this is the first time you have ever heard somebody say these kind of things. You've never thought of this before. And that's the very reason that you aren't happy in your marriage. You aren't happy in relationships. You aren't satisfied. Is because it's all about you and getting what you can get instead of giving and finding the joy and the satisfaction that comes in denying yourself and putting other people ahead of yourself. The reason that most people aren't happy today is because they don't have these attitudes. But this is what Paul is sharing. His secrets, how it was that he was able to rejoice 
and praise God even in these terrible situations. It's because he put other people first. He thought on them. He esteemed other people better than himself. He used Jesus' example of humbling himself and yielding himself even to the point of death for the benefit of other people. I tell you, if you have that attitude and if it's not something that you conjure up that you are just trying to follow something because somebody else said it, if it comes out of your heart, if you renew your mind and out of a genuine heart love people the way that Christ loved us, I guarantee you it is going to produce huge amounts of joy and peace and satisfaction in your life. Boy, that's huge. And now the uh, seventh thing, the seventh secret of Paul's happiness is right here in Philippians chapter 2 and in verse um, 15, it says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse world, a perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So one of the ways that Paul said that he rejoiced right here was because they held forth the word of life. If you are going to truly walk in joy and happiness, you're going to have to be a person that the word of God dominates you. Not only your thinking, but your actions. Your whole perspective. Everything is filtered through the word of God. Man, that's a huge statement right there. But I'm telling you, this is one of the big reasons that people don't rejoice is because they aren't looking at things through the Word of God. The Word of God is not dominant. Over in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was talking about the end times and He was giving all of the signs of the end times. I just saw a friend of mine at the post office yesterday and he says, what's the Lord speaking to you? And then he started saying, man, I'm thinking we've got to be at the end of the world. And he started talking about how bad things are deteriorating, all of the things that were happening in the world. And he was just really concerned looking at this. When Jesus was talking in the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew, he said that in the latter days, men's hearts would fail them for fear looking at the things that are coming to pass on this earth. We are living in that day and time. Not only have I, do I believe things have gotten worse, but we have more access to all of the information. You know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, people didn't know what was happening on the other side of the world until two weeks later. And by that time, you know, if, if it was insignificant, it was already over with, and it just changed the impression that people had. Nowadays, we see all of the bad things that are happening in the world instantly at real time, and we pay big money, hundreds of dollars for that to be piped into our home so that we can see all of the bad news from all over the world. We'll hear all of the prognosticators giving their predictions about the end of the world and how the, you know, this global warming, climate change is destroying this and how we're doing this and our oceans are, are going to be totally destroyed and just on and on and on it goes. And you know what? If you just listen to this stuff... And if you don't filter it through the Word of God, something would be wrong with you if you weren't depressed. I saw a bumper sticker that had on it. It says, if you aren't depressed, you aren't paying attention. And you know what? That is true if you aren't looking at what's happening in the world through the Word of God. But again, going back to 
Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus talked about man's hearts failing them for fear, looking after these things. He said there would be earthquakes in divers places. You know, I've seen statistics on this and I don't have them in front of me. I couldn't quote this exactly, but there is like 10 or 100 times more earthquakes today than there was 100 years ago. We are living in a time that earthquakes have just multiplied exponentially, which means that the prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24 is showing that we are in the end times. It also said there would be wars and rumors of wars. Boy, you don't have to look very far to see that that's happening. And I remember when the Berlin Wall came down, the Soviet Union dissolved, and people were crying, peace, peace, that this is the end of hostility. All of, you know, there's now peace in the world, and people were talking about disarming and drawing back the military. And sadly, America has done a lot of that. We are at our worst uh, preparedness, readiness in decades. Uh, anyway, I could spend a lot of time on that, but it's because people think that there's peace. Man, you're just deceived. Jesus said that in the last days there would be wars and rumors of wars, but people would be crying, peace, peace, and there is no peace. Man, we since the Berlin Wall came down and the, you know, the evil Soviet Union was dissolved, that didn't solve all the problems. We probably had more wars, maybe not on the global scale, it hadn't been a nuclear holocaust, but man, we have had more wars since the Berlin Wall came down than before. That's a sign of the end times. And anyway, we could just go on and on talking about this. There's a lot of things listed in Matthew chapter 24, but the Lord said, when you see these things, then how should you react? He didn't say cry, then get fearful. No, He said rejoice and lift up your eyes because your redemption draws nigh. If you were looking at things through the Word of God and not through a carnal mindset, not through a carnal paradigm or worldview, but if the Word of God was the source, and if you were doing that, when you see the increase in earthquakes, the increase in war, when you see the world going the direction that it was prophesied, then, like Jesus, you would rejoice, saying, This is awesome, man. Our redemption draws nigh. It's not going to be long until we see Jesus. And you could rejoice. I know some of you are thinking, well, man, that's not the way I think. That's the reason that you don't have happiness the way that Paul did in the midst of all of his persecutions because you're just looking at things with a carnal mindset. But if you look at things through the Word of God, then there is reason to rejoice. You know, we sing this song about when we all get to heaven, what a day that's going to be. And we'll hear preaching on heaven and people will talk about it. And stuff, and then the doctor tells you you're going to heaven, you only got two months to live, and you start crying and you fall apart like a two dollar suitcase. You know, you aren't thinking on things correctly. It says in Romans chapter 8 that the sufferings of this present world aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. I guarantee you, when we get to heaven, people aren't going to say, Well, man, I'm glad I'm finally over that. I'm glad I'm not facing this problem anymore. Heaven is going to be so awesome that you won't even think about this life. It says the former things are passed away and will not come to mind. You won't even think about this life except in terms of redemption and the good things that God did for you. Heaven is so awesome that see, if you were holding forth the word of life, the way that Paul said right here in Philippians 2.16, 
And if you were really focused on the Word and the doctor tells you you're going to die, you wouldn't be depressed. You wouldn't be discouraged. And I know that there's people watching this program right now that think you are totally unreasonable. But I'm telling you, I have seen this. I've dealt with death a lot in my life. I've had a lot of people around me die. And as a minister, I've been with dozens, maybe hundreds of people who have died. And I have seen this over and over and over for people who are believers that the sting is taken out of, sin, of, of death, that it's lost its sting, and that people are actually rejoicing. You know, my mother was a great example of this, that she lived to be 96 years old, and she was perfectly healthy until she was about 94. A couple of things happened anyway. She was in hospice for nine or ten months. They said she couldn't live through the night for nine or ten months, and she just kept living. And anyway, every time I'd call her, she'd say, Andy, are you praying that I'll die? And I'd say, yes, Mother, I'm praying that you'll die. Every time I'd go see her, she'd make me pray with her and says, pray that I can die. What's wrong with me? She says, how come I can't die? She was ready to go. And I wasn't with her at the exact time she died. I was with her a couple of weeks before, but she had these nurses with her, and she was seeing people. She even talked to this person that she called Womack. And uh, she kept talking to Womack and says, Womack. And, and so these nurses says, who is Womack? Do you know that's what my mother called my dad? She always called him Womack because they were, he was the principal and she was a school teacher when they first met. And they had a non-fraternizing policy where they couldn't date or see each other. So he would drive by her place, honk the horn. She would sneak around the corner, get in the back of the car, put a blanket over her, and they'd have to go to another town to date. And while they were still, you know, she was teaching at the school and he was the principal, they had to act like they didn't have anything going, so she called him Mr. Womack. And so she spent a long period of time calling him Mr. Womack, even when they were dating. And when she got married, she went down to meet all of the relatives, and my Uncle Safi, who was quite a guy, uh, she was calling him Mr. Womack. And my Uncle Sappy said, you're going to have to drop the mister. So she dropped the mister and she called him Womack. So who would have known that a woman would call her husband by his surname? But that's what my mother did. And so these nurses said that she's been talking to somebody named Womack and said that he came to get her and stuff. And you know what? It was a glorious experience. And my mother went out. One time she was talking to my sister and she says, am I alive? And my sister said, yes, mother, you're still alive. And she says, well, I've already been to heaven four times today. And she was in and out of her body, and she was more in heaven than she was here, and she was ready to go. Now, I know some of you think that's weird, but I'm telling you, this is not weird for a believer. If you hold forth the Word of God, if you get to where you believe the Word of God, you should be able to rejoice. If the doctor tells you you're going to die, wonderful. Because at the very worst, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to spend eternity with the Lord. It's going to be a blast. It'll be awesome. And if you get healed, well, that'll be awesome too. You'll be able to use this testimony, this healing for a testimony, rub the devil's nose in it. You're going to win anyway. See, if you held forth the Word of God, and if the Word of God was more real to you than yourself, than just promoting yourself, looking at things from a carnal standpoint... You could rejoice even if the doctor tells you you're going to die. You could rejoice even if you see this increase in 
earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and all of these things happen. You can lift up your eyes and rejoice because your redemption is drawing nigh. You know, I remember back when the interest rates went over 20%. This is back in, I guess, the 70s, I think it was. And we were having the long queues at the gas stations. And you know what? People were just pushing the panic button. This is the end of the world. We've got 22% interest rates. And they were just complaining. You know what I did? I took the Word of God. And it says that the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. And, and anyway, it would take me a while to explain this, but the Lord just showed me that all that was happening was there was a transformation of this wealth, transfer of this wealth. And that people who were believing God were still prospering. The world system was unraveling, but it wouldn't change anything because Philippians 4.19 says, God will supply all of my need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And when I saw this, instead of me panicking and being bothered by the interest rates. Instead, I saw it as, praise God, this is Scripture being fulfilled. The ungodly, they're losing control of it. The wealth is coming to the righteous. The wealth of the sinners laid up for the righteous. And I begin to appropriate it. And you know what? I begin to prosper. And I begin to start seeing increase. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what's going on. If you lose your job, if you're laid off, God is your source, not that job. And God could have something better. And you could sit there and look at it and uh, you could say, man, this is awesome. This is a brand new beginning. Now I'll be able to just fulfill God's will better. There is no reason for you to panic, being depressed, discouraged, anything. Some people say, but what about if I'm going through a divorce? Well, you know, even through a divorce, you could still rejoice if you held forth the Word of God. Somebody's thinking, what is good about a divorce? What can you rejoice about? Well, if nothing else, you ought to be able to say, Praise God, the Word says in heaven they don't marry nor are given in marriage. Amen. This is just temporary. I'm not going to deal with this throughout all eternity. Praise God that He's written me. He's engraven me upon the palms of His hands. That's what the Scripture says. And so He'll never divorce me. You know, if you are going through a divorce, it's usually not just one-sided. Usually it's on both parts. It may not be totally your fault, but usually there's some reason why it's happening and things like this and you could you could share some of the blame but the good news with Jesus is that even though we aren't perfect and even though we fail to be what we are God has promised he would never leave us nor forsake us he's with us always even unto the end of the world so if you were to look at the word of God and analyze your divorce your separation in the light of the Word of God, there would still be reason to rejoice because praise God, the Lord is not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. Maybe you messed up and maybe you were unfaithful to your mate and because of it they just took off or whatever. Or maybe they were unfaithful to you. Whatever the situation is, God will never be unfaithful to you. God will never leave you regardless how unfaithful to Him you are. And in that, you could find something to rejoice in. This is what Paul is saying right here. He says, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. This is why he rejoiced because the people were holding forth the word of life. He was standing in the word of God. We need to get to where we just take God's word and we, let, we exalt it and do what the word says instead of what you feel. You know, this is part of being an adult is just growing up and doing what you know needs to be done. 
And did you know it's the same thing in the spiritual realm? You just need to grow up, pull your thumb out of your mouth, and just do what the Word says regardless of how you feel. The Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's in Philippians chapter 4. In John chapter 16, verse 33, says, In the world you shall have tribulation. So this is talking about not just when everything's going good. You are going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The Lord made it very clear right there. Even in the hard times, you were supposed to rejoice and be of good cheer. John chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled, implying that you have control over this. He wouldn't tell you to do something you couldn't do. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. You can do that. Psalms chapter 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And on and on we could go with these things. The Word says we are supposed to rejoice. Rejoicing joy is not something that comes as a byproduct of no problems. It's a choice that you make. You need to grab hold of the Word of God and you just need to start praising God. You know, my wife and I received a call on uh, March the 4th of 2001 and we were told that my youngest son had died. And I guarantee you, I didn't feel like rejoicing. I felt grief and everything, but I just did what the Word said. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always. And I didn't like those feelings of grief and sorrow and I started praising God. Not because I felt like it, but because I was holding forth the word of life. I was doing what the word said. And you know, when I did that, it's like I primed the pump. All of a sudden, the spirit rose up on the inside of me. And I had prophecies come back and faith. And I spoke that my son is going to live and not die. And he had been dead for over four hours, nearly five hours. He had been dead and he was raised from the dead after being dead for over four hours and no brain damage. No more than he had before, praise God. And I'm telling you, it's because I put the Word of God ahead of my personal feelings. If you're going to truly experience the happiness that Paul was talking about, you're going to have to hold forth the Word of life. You're going to have to let God's Word dominate you, and you're going to have to use it like a glass that you look at the entire world through the prism of God's Word. The next thing here in Philippians chapter 3 Paul begins to talk about how he doesn't have any confidence in the flesh. Boy, that's huge. That is a major, major key or secret to happiness. Look at this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. You know, this is a little off the topic, but I think that this is uh, really good. And that is that you need to recognize that Paul said, I'm writing the same things unto you. It doesn't bother me to say this, but it's necessary for you. So many times there is an attitude that's developed in Christians that we're always looking for the newest, the biggest, the greatest, something brand new. I don't know what the fascination with that is, but people just love the new Paul is saying that, you know what, you need to hear some of the th same things over and over and over. He says, I'm writing it to you because it's necessary for you. And I just want to encourage you, this is a little aside here, but there's so many people that are always looking for the new thing and get, they, they're led off track by it. You know, you just need to stick with the basics. The things that I'm sharing that Paul wrote about here in Philippians, this is as basic, fundamental Christianity as you can possibly get. 
and yet the average person doesn't know it. There's people all over here on these tangents wondering about all of these things and trying to get into the nuances and into these weird things. I have people ask me questions all of the time about scriptures. And you know what? Probably the dominant answer that I give is, I don't know. I don't understand everything. I don't understand all of the eschatology and the end times. and I don't understand all of this stuff. But man, I've, I've focused on the basics and because of it, the Word of God is working in my life. And yet I meet people that they don't even have down how to get along with their mate. They don't know how to walk in joy. They don't know how to walk in peace. But boy, they're going to know everything there is to know about the end times. I'm telling you, you are way out of balance. Way out of balance. Worrying about all of these other things and yet you can't even function in this life. You ought to put the emphasis on these fundamental type of things. And this is what Paul is saying. In verse 2 he says, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. The wor Beware of dogs. This isn't talking about the sign that we put on our fence. Dogs was a terminology in the Old Testament for a homosexual. And I don't believe it's totally limited to that, but it's just talking about perversion. And so that's what he's talking about. It says, Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. Now, this, there's something hidden here that most people don't get. The word concision means a cutting. And of course, in the next verse, it says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. There's a play on words here. And one of the biggest oppositions that Paul received was from religious people who were specifically preaching the keeping of the law and the number one ritual that they uh, said you had to keep was circumcision where the males were circumcised and this was a sign of the covenant that was given to Abraham and it said in the Old Testament that if you didn't circumcise your male children that they had to be killed so it was a non-negotiable sign of the covenant the Christians came along preaching that it's not circumcision and it's not keeping the rituals and keeping the Passover and doing these things. It's just total faith in Christ. And if you have faith in Christ, you're born again and you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to keep the rituals. You don't have to observe the Sabbath. And boy, to the legalistic Jews, this was a major obstacle. The whole book of Galatians was written around that. Uh, Acts chapter 15, there was a huge conference. The very first conference held in the church was in Acts chapter 15 over this issue of circumcision. So this is what Paul is referring to. And, and so when he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the circum, uh, beware of the concision, he didn't say beware of the circumcision. He said beware of the concision, which means a, a cutting or mutilation is what the word says, for we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. This is a backhanded way of criticizing those people who are preaching circumcision as essential to relationship with God. And basically it's just saying, beware of these people who are talking about mutilating your body. He degraded this whole thing and talked about it as nothing but just mutilation of the body. Boy, this would have been super offensive to the religious people in his day. The last phrase in this third verse says, We have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, 
If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I am more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He didn't say sinless. He said blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. And this is a tremendous statement right here. And one of the reasons that Paul was able to rejoice and praise God and have happiness even in the midst of terrible situations like being in prison and stuff is because he had no confidence in the flesh. Or another way of saying this in modern terms, he had no confidence in himself. Did you know if you are trusting in yourself... If your happiness is all based upon what your accomplishments are, and sad to say, this is true of the vast majority of people, and that's the reason, I'm going to digress a little bit, I'll get back to this point, but I think this is why people have midlife crisis. They blame it on their hormones, they blame it on all kinds of things, but you know what I believe it amounts to is that most people are not looking ahead they aren't thinking about the long term. They're just living for the moment. They get excited as young people about going out and experimenting and doing all of these things. And they start a family and do this. And they just are distracted. And about midlife, it dawns on them that, you know what? I'm halfway through with this thing. And what have I accomplished? They start thinking that I'm on the downhill slope. And I've got half of my life behind me. What have I accomplished? Where am I going? And all of a sudden, they come to grips with reality that, you know what, I've wasted half my life. I've created problems instead of creating possibilities and positive things. And all of a sudden, they have a crisis. And people try and blame it on hormones or whatever. What it is, it's just that they have had confidence in themselves. They have just been thinking about themselves. They're patting themselves on the back. They're young. They're virile. They have all of this energy and they just think that the world, you know, is never going to change. They begin to start aging and all of a sudden their confidence in themselves begins to wane and they go through a midlife crisis. One of the secrets to having happiness is that you don't have confidence in yourself. You aren't trusting in yourself and in your own ability. You trust in the Lord. You have no confidence. Notice it didn't say that you have less confidence in yourself than you have in God. It says you have no confidence in the flesh. And this is hard even for Christians to get hold of. The average Christian, once they get born again, they believe that they're forgiven of all of their past sins. And it's like God picked them up, dust them off, cleaned them up, wound them up, and points them in the right direction and says, now try and do it right. So now that they're forgiven and they no longer have these past sins holding them back, most Christians are now thinking that somehow or another they are going to be able to succeed and they are going to be able to do things that they failed at in the past and they really start putting confidence in their flesh because their flesh is so much better. They aren't going out and dipping and, and doing all of these things and lying and stealing and they've improved so much they get to thinking that I'm actually so much better than themselves. And then they find out that they still have this flesh. You know, when you get born again, your spirit gets saved, but your carnal self still exists. And I can guarantee you it's just a matter of time until your carnal self does something carnal because that's what it is. And you are going to fail. 
And these that have had confidence in themselves and thinking that now I'm a Christian, I should be able to live better. I should be able to do all of these things. When they fail, boy, they get down on themselves. They condemn themselves. They might have been living in adultery before and weren't that condemned about it. But now that they're a Christian and they, they're seeking the Lord and going to church and they're reading the Bible and they're doing all of these things, they get condemned just because they lost their temper one time. They get more upset over that than they did over committing adultery before because they expect so much more of themselves. You know, we actually had a situation where one of my employees, their husband was a minister and had done some great things, uh, loved God, used to prophesy to me, give me a lot of good things. They were, they were a born-again Christian and a leader in the body of Christ. And anyway, some things were misunderstood. This guy thought that his wife committed adultery on him, and she didn't. I was aware of the situation. I talked to him. He misread. He just got jealous and supposed that something had happened. And anyway, because of that, this guy went back and took an overdose of drugs. He used to be a drug addict before he got born again, and he thought that his marriage had come apart. He took an overdose of drugs trying to kill himself. And he literally took the Bible and threw it out his car window and said, God, if this is what serving you produces, then I just rejected the whole thing. Went and took an overdose, tried to kill himself, and because it was an attempted suicide, they put him in the psych ward at the hospital, and uh, I went up to visit him. And he specifically left instructions for me not to come see him. But I went to see him anyway. And I, you know, forced my way in there. And when I got in there, he was just so ashamed. He was so humiliated. He was crying. He says, how could I have done this? I've been a pastor. He says, I know better. He says, God has changed my life. God redeemed me. And he just was so down on himself. He says, I thought I was better than this. I thought I was beyond this. And you know, one of the ways I ministered to him, I just told him, I said, you know what? If you get out of Christ and trusting in Him and abiding in Him and you get back into yourself, yourself hasn't improved. Your born-again self is totally new and to the degree that you live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, well then, yes, you are going to see success and improvement as you grow and mature in the Lord. But if you step back into the flesh... Your flesh is capable of doing anything that your flesh was ever capable of. And I, it's like riding in an airplane. Some people think, man, look what I'm doing. You aren't doing anything but sitting there. The plane is what's flying, not you. You are flying because of your position in that plane. All you got to do is step out of that plane, and I guarantee you, you will fall. You aren't flying. It's your position in that plane. Likewise, when you get born again and you see things improving and it looks like, man, your life has just totally changed, it's because you have become a new creature and you are depending upon God and you're following His leading and He's living through you. But if you ever step out of who you are in Christ, I guarantee you, you are as capable of failure. You can be as mean as a snake. You can do anything that anybody could do. You know, God has blessed me. I got born again when I was eight years old. I've always been seeking the Lord. I've never gone out and committed adultery. I've never done any of these things. And some people could think, well, you just are incapable of doing that. But that's not so. I'm incapable of doing anything that anybody else is. Now, I don't believe I'm capable of it today because I've spent an entire life 
with a set of values and seeking the Lord and doing certain things, and you couldn't, you couldn't force me to commit adultery today. But if I was to step outside of Christ, if I was to get back into my flesh, and if I quit seeking the Lord and praying and loving people and doing the things that God has called me to do, and if I just hardened my heart layer after layer of insensitivity between me and God, eventually I'm as capable of committing adultery and lying and stealing and murder and being a dope addict as anybody. If I was to just indulge myself, I've still got flesh. And what a lot of Christians don't understand, they are trying to do the right thing, but they are doing it in their power, thinking that somehow or another, now that I'm saved, I should be able to do this. You need to get this attitude the Apostle Paul had, that he had no confidence in his flesh. This is important, and yet he had USDA choice flesh. I mean, his flesh was better than most people's flesh. He listed all of these things. How he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. That means one of the, you know, premier tribes in the nation of Israel. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, Man, Paul was one of the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Jew to the core. And yet he says, all of these things that were gained to me, I counted them but dung, manure. Man, that's awesome. Did you know most people today frame their manure, their degree. They put it on the wall in a frame and they brag about it. Paul's saying, all of the things that I was able to accomplish in myself, all of my doctorates, all of these things that gave me credibility and prestige in the eyes of people, I counted them but done. Boy, that's a major statement. And this is one of the reasons that Paul was able to be happy even in extreme situations because his happiness wasn't found in himself and in his accomplishments. Am I saying that, you know, you shouldn't strive to accomplish anything? I'm saying that you shouldn't put... Your, your, uh, you shouldn't hang your worth and value on it. If you get to where you are proud over all of your accomplishments and over all of your trophies and over all of the things that you've done and you get to reading your own press releases and you get really caught up with how awesome you are, then I can guarantee you sooner or later you're going to fail. And I know some of you don't want to believe that. You think, no, I'm always going to succeed. You know, one of the blessings that I had when I started in ministry, nobody had listened to me. And I didn't have anybody to minister to. So I volunteered to go into nursing homes. And I used to go into the nursing homes two or three times a week and minister to these people. And I remember meeting people that they still, there was never a hair out of place. I remember this one woman who just looked perfect. She looked old, but she was perfect. Her hair was always combed. She always had her makeup on. She was always dressed immaculately. You could tell that she was a mover and a shaker. She was just one of the awesome people that in her day, everybody was awed by this woman. She still had that air about her. But now she was old. If I remember correctly, I think it was a pastor's wife. And, you know, she had just been put on this pedestal. Everybody admired her, I'm sure gave her praise and stuff. But her husband had died. Now she was old. She was living in a nursing home. Her children had forsaken her. Nobody ever came to see her. Nobody cared about her. 
And I'd go in and try and show this woman the love of God and she'd just sit there all day long crying. And you know what? At one time, her flesh was USDA choice flesh. She was accomplishing things. People praised her. But she came to a place where she was no longer productive. She was put out to pasture and she spent her last days just crying and being miserable because she had confidence in the flesh. Maybe her flesh was better than my flesh or your flesh, but everybody's flesh is going to fail sooner or later. With most people, it's sooner instead of later. And I can promise you, even if you are one of these that just whatever you touch, it seems to work, you're talented, you can do all of these things, you may think that I don't need to depend upon the Lord the way you do. I don't need a crutch the way that you do. But I can guarantee you, if you are trusting in your ability and in yourself, there will come a time that you will fail. And when you do, all of your joy and peace will fail too because it was all founded in yourself. But if your life is anchored in the Lord, if, if it's your relationship with the Lord, if it's what God has done in your life that is your joy and your focus, then when you do well, you aren't more happy because the Lord is still the same and you're just rejoicing in Him and you are found to be steady even when everything's going good. And when everything goes bad, you're still steady because you know what? You, it wasn't your accomplishment. It wasn't your great ability in the first place that gave you your joy. It was your relationship with God. I'm telling you, this is what gives stability to your life. This is one of the reasons that Paul was able to rejoice even in the midst of terrible situations is because he had no confidence in himself. He wasn't priding himself on his accomplishments. If he had been, then when he was in prison and unable to go out there and convert the world and travel and do all of the things that he was so successful at, when he wasn't able to do that, it would have just destroyed him. It would have killed him because he wasn't able to do. He wasn't able to do something to justify his existence. But see, that wasn't his case. He had no confidence in himself. He, didn't, he wasn't joyful based on what his accomplishments were. In prison, he still had the same relationship with the Lord that he had when he was out of prison. And because of this, he was able to rejoice in the midst of everything because he put no confidence in his flesh. Man, that's huge. That is huge. And I'm telling you, there's many people I think that you need to pray about this and let God expound on it because there are some direct applications of this to your life. And I tell you, you need to find your total satisfaction in the Lord.